Good morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, today we are uh, wrapping up this sermon series that we've been on, um, life interruptions, and uh, I want to conclude it actually with uh, someone who's going to share their testimony of, of ways in which life interruption or interruptions is, is allow them to seek God in a different way. Uh, Andrina, so I'm going to call her up at the end and have her share. So I'm going to zip through, and hopefully you'll be able to walk away hearing a part of someone's story of who God is. Some of you may know, may not know this. Part of the rationale for why I do certain sermon series is conversations with people. And one of the, one of the ways in which I've come to this sermon series and this topic is when I talk to folks uh, who are skeptical of the Bible or Christianity, once in a while I run into folks who are skeptical because of intellectual reasons. They're legitimate intellectual barriers. But you know what I found? I found that a lot of times the arguments are not intellectual, but they're more personal in terms of why they struggle with the Christian faith. A lot of times when I allow them to talk and just listen, I'll hear, if God is good and loving, then why did he let this happen? Why did he let that happen? If God is really who he says he is, then then why this and why that? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You've been there, right? Well, the story or the narrative of Joseph tackles that question head on. And as difficult as it is for sometimes us, those of us even that have believed and walked with Jesus for a while, the truth that we see over and over again Particularly in this story with our scripture is this powerful truth that, that God's silence is not what? God's absence. That God's seeming hiddenness, where are you, are, is not impotence or abandonment. That the unbelievable truth that we're challenged with is that it's when, seeing, it's when things seem to be going the most wrong that God is most working. In our lives. So that means. That if you and I reject God. Based on what we see on the surface of our lives. Because we can't see anything that God might be doing. We might be making one of the worst mistakes of our lives. I don't know about you. But uh, as I'm talking about this question of life interruptions. I am realizing how often it is that I ask the two questions I say we are normally prone to ask. Why is this happening and when is this going to end? And I've been asking you and me to, to ask different questions of God. What are you wanting to do in me right now in the midst of this interruption? And what are you wanting to do through me in the midst of this interruption? And no, let's, let's be really clear. We don't want to say flipping things like everything happens for a reason. What we've been saying is, Everything might not happen for a reason, but in everything that happens, God is able to glorify himself, make us more like Jesus, and bring out salvation and redemption. I'm realizing more and more that uh, God is less interested in my comfort than he is in my transformation. I am realizing more and more that God will rarely give me what I want. But God will oftentimes give me what I need. 
at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right proportions. We talked about this last week or a couple weeks ago in God's discipline to make me more like him. I am often finding it in grace. God will do what it takes to shake my confidence in me so that I will learn to lean and put my confidence and trust in him. One-fourth of the book of Genesis is spent on this one guy, Joseph. The entire story, if you pay attention to it, is a story of how a young 17-year-old man grows up to be emotionally and spiritually mature adult. Joseph is born into, and by the way, I've heard some of you guys come up and say, I'm thankful for this story of Joseph, and I've heard it before, but I'm reminded once again that my family might be jacked up. But God could actually bring redemption and healing and do something with that. (laughs) Preach, yes. Joseph is born into a family of utter dysfunction and toxicity. And he could have been stuck in this vicious cycle of sin and brokenness. But not only does Joseph break out of that, but he actually winds up being a blessing to the very family that abandoned him. Joseph is born the 11th son of 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob has two wives and two concubines. Joseph is his favorite adored son out of all the sons. And as a result, it poisons the entire family system. Joseph's brothers utterly hate him. And Joseph doesn't help the situation because he's turning into a lying, arrogant egomaniac. So one day when Jacob says to Joseph, go check on your brothers, the brothers decide to hatch up a plan to kill him. At the last minute, they change their mind and they decide to sell him to a merchant going down to Egypt. Then they tell their brother some elaborate lie about how their son was mauled by an animal. And meanwhile, Joseph goes to Egypt and he finds himself in the household of the second most powerful man in Egypt. And it's in that household that because God was with him, Joseph rises to the ranks of being in charge of the entire household. And just when things were going well, what happens? He gets accused of rape by his master's wife thrown into prison where he languishes for 10 years. In prison, he is given an opportunity to interpret the dream of the Pharaoh that no one else could dream, interpret. And as a result, Joseph finds himself now in the court of the Pharaoh. Decades pass. There's a massive famine in the entire known world. Egypt is the only country that has grain because of Joseph, his administrative abilities. So all the countries are now flocking to Egypt to get grain. There's famine in the land of Canaan. And Jacob sends his sons to go get grain from Egypt. So the brothers are sent by Jacob. And they walk into the palace of the prime minister. And little do they know that the man that they're standing in front of, that has power to give them grain, but to kill them is their brother they haven't seen in decades. And I wish I could preach on that, and I'll come back maybe months down the line. But there's this amazing scene where Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And in the most amazing statements in the Bible, Joseph says this to the 11 brothers that try to kill him and sell him into slavery. Genesis 45.5, and now... Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph is able to say to his brothers, the very same brothers that did what they did to him, what you did was evil. God didn't cause it. You caused it. Your envy, your jealousy, your hatred caused it. But God is so wise, so loving, and so powerful that he took your evil and turned it into good. I'm going to tell you right now, you and I cannot have that perspective apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you right now, To have that perspective that Joseph has about what happened to him. To have that kind of God-anchored, God-centered perspective. What you did was evil, but God turned that evil into good. You and I cannot have that perspective unless the Holy Spirit helps us. Can I get an amen? Impossible unless the Holy Spirit enables us. That's not our main text. We have to go to the last chapter, the last act of this story. The last act is Joseph is reunited with his father Jacob. The entire family comes back to Egypt where they flourish. And eventually Jacob dies. And in this last scene, as we end this sermon series, we see Joseph's amazing perspective about the life interruptions that happened in his life. And learn a couple other things in the meantime. Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the things we did to them? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you, Joseph, to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph, what? Do you know why he's weeping? Because the brothers are lying. There's no record of Jacob ever saying such a thing. Joseph's brothers still don't trust Jacob. Or don't trust Joseph. Their posture is he's being nice to us because of dad. Now that dad's gone, what's he going to do? Listen carefully, please, because I only have two minutes on this. In weeping... Joseph is genuinely mourning and grieving the sadness and brokenness of his family. In weeping, Joseph is not doing what you and I sometimes do. My family was jacked up, but you know what? A family is perfect. Joseph doesn't do what you and I do, which is, you know, my family was kind of jacked up. My parents, but you know what? They were better than most. No, no, no. Joseph is honestly grieving and mourning the brokenness and the sadness of his family. Do you know why that's important? Put this point up here. Please listen. Because true forgiveness can only come out of honest grieving. True forgiveness can only come out of honest grieving. 
I've said this before for many times. Emotionally healthy people, spiritually emotionally healthy people, do you want to be one of those? And the answer hopefully is yes. Understand how their past affects their present ability to love people and to love God. Emotionally, spiritually healthy people understand how your past, your family, your past relationships, your marriage, your relationships affect your present ability to love God and to love others. The problem is for most of us, we don't want to go back. We don't want to genuinely mourn. Why? Some of us are like, that's a waste of time. Some of us are like, that's going to be more painful than where I'm at right now, which is in denial, but it's more painful, so I don't want to. It's amazing to me that married couples who have dysfunctional marriages today are refusing to acknowledge the hurt and the brokenness of the years past that's caused their marriage to where it is. How the heck do you forgive somebody today? Without genuinely mourning and grieving the loss and the pain and the sadness. How do you do that? How do I do that? See, some of you are trying to forgive some people, maybe your parents your whole life, but you can't. Why? Because you haven't honestly grieved the loss, grieved the hurt, grieved the betrayal. You cannot truly forgive unless you've genuinely and honestly mourned and grieved. So he keeps coming back to you again and again. You've heard me say this before, right? You're never free from what you haven't forgiven. You're never free from what you haven't forgiven. If you haven't forgiven, you're trapped. You know this, you're trapped in a prison of hate and bitterness and anger. And resentment. Joseph has the power to kill his brothers in a moment's notice. But in the process of genuinely grieving and mourning and weeping the loss. He's able to say to them, I forgive you. Let me just stop here and say this. This always comes up. Whenever I preach... I could only spend like a few minutes on a major topic. You're sitting there going, how can you just do that and move on? That's because we talk about these topics. We talked about forgiveness. And there's a long sermon series. Please, please, please. If this is something that's triggered something and you're like, oh, I need to hear more. You can't just leave. Like, go check it out. Go check out our sermon series podcast. We talk about forgiveness. And please pursue a journey of dealing with some of this stuff. Verse 18, his brothers and came and threw themselves before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Read the following words with me. Am I in the place of God? It's possible to go back, genuinely mourn and grieve your past, mourn the sadness of the sins of your parents, of your family, of past relationships, and to forgive. But in order to do that, You have to do what Joseph does here, which is what? He refuses to put himself in God's chair. I'm going to tell you right now. If you read the entire Bible, 
Every single thing that ails you and me today, and I'll talk a little bit about it, every single thing boils down to one thing. Ultimately, that is us going, I'm going to sit in God's chair. Every single thing. What is the very first temptation to Adam and Eve? Take, and you will be as what? Again, I only have like a couple minutes on this. And you guys really know when I say a couple minutes, like 10, right? So I only have, you know, a few minutes on this. But I need to hit it and move on. Because again, these could be entire sermon series each point. Here are the ways in which we put ourselves in God's chair. One, you and I become our own moral authority. We assume we can be our moral authority. In the very beginning, when God everything the way he wanted, do you, many, do you remember how many rules there were? If you're not a Christian here, by the way, perfect Sunday for you. Because you think of Christianity, you think of rules. When God had the world exactly, how many rules there were? There was one rule. You've heard me say this before. Imagine how short their Bible was. You could fit it inside of a fortune cookie. That's how long the Bible. God says what? You could eat of any tree, but of this one tree, you shall not eat. I have my kids come and ask me, God, what was it about the tree? God, (laughs) I didn't say I don't struggle with this. Y'all know I struggle with this deeply. Why even, why even playing? Dad, what was it about the tree? I had no idea. Asked me, was there was there some sort of special thing about the fruit? Like if you ate it, it'd be like God. And we get this notion of like, was there something mystical about it? There's nothing mystical about the tree. What was God saying? God said, when you, God, when God said to them, you could eat of any tree, but do not eat of that tree. He was simply saying one thing, and that is what: trust my word as authority. And when serpent comes and says what? What? It's ridiculous. You could eat of the tree and you will be as God. He was absolutely right. He said, when you eat of the tree and decide for yourself what's right and wrong, you place yourself in the seat of God. It's a really simple question. I need to move on. Who is your moral authority? What is your moral anchor? What is your, nor- what is your compass? What is your north star? Is it culture? Is it your feelings? What guides you? And again, this can be an entire sermon, so I need to move. What guides you? Is it his word as authority? Culture? Our feelings? My peers? Second way that we take the place of God is when you let people look to you to meet their deepest needs. Hello, anybody? In 2 Kings, there's this fascinating story. Naaman, the Syrian general, has leprosy. And he wants to get healed. And a servant girl says, go to Israel where there's a king and he might be able to help you. So Naaman loads his wagon with gold and silver and he goes to the king of Israel. And he says, I have leprosy, heal me. You know what the king of Israel says? He says, am I God? Can I kill? Can I make live? What's he saying? I'm a king. I can do lots of things. But one thing I can't do is meet the deepest needs of your heart. Let me speak to two people and then I move on. Those of us in ministry, helping professionals, we are prone to this. We are prone to this. We are prone to having people look to us to meet the deepest needs of their hearts. 
servants, ministry people, helping professionals, please don't try and heal yourself by healing other people. Please do not try and heal yourself by healing other people. Please avoid the temptation to find your identity and significance in the fact that people need you. Do not fall into the dangerous, toxic, dysfunctional Anybody in relationships? At some point, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you need to look them in the eyes and go, I can do a lot of things, but I cannot meet the deepest needs of your heart. Only God can do that. Why do you look to people to meet needs that only God can meet? Third way, inordinate worry. Jesus in Sermon on the Mount says what? Why do you worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear? And then the following phrase, we just kind of skip over. For your heavenly father, what? Knows what you need. Is able to provide. Excessive worry is refusal to give God kingship. Excessive worry is not just, well, you know, I'm just a worrying type. It's a refusal to give God kingship. You know what my wife likes to say to me once in a while? Oh, there you go again. I'm trying to be the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Let Peter stop ruling the world. Why do you try and control things that you have absolutely no control over? Why do you try and control things that you have absolutely no control over? You think it's just a personality trait? It's refusal to give God kinship. And can I just say this? I find it ironic that we like to take kingship in areas that we need to make God king and we abdicate areas of our lives where we need to take control. You and I <laughs> take control and check into things that we have absolutely no control over in certain areas where God goes, that's you. It's up to you. We go, well, no, no, no. It's up to you. Why do we do that? Why are you doing that this morning? Why am I doing that this morning? Instead, refuse to say, I don't know. I don't, I'd like to see some things happen, but I don't know. Worry comes from the fact that I think I know exactly what ought to happen and God might not get it right. So I'm going to worry. Instead of saying that, I'm going to get off the chair. Uh-uh. I don't know. I'd like some things. I wish some things would happen, but I don't know. The more you do that, the more you preach yourself, the more your worry becomes manageable. Can I get an amen? Lastly, you're keeping a grudge. You're sitting in God's seat when you keep a grudge. You're sitting in God's seat when you stay resentful and you hold on to your anger towards someone who's wronged you. This is the reason why God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you know what that is saying? God's saying, please get out of my chair. Do you know why God says that he only has the right to judge? One, the reason why God says only he has the right to judge is because he only has the perfect knowledge to judge. See, if you really want to be the judge, you and I would have to have 
some sort of perfect knowledge about exactly what they deserve. Do you and I really know exactly what they deserve? Because if you and I were to judge somebody, we would know the environment they grew up in, the kind of influence they've had, events that shaped their lives, the various circumstances, that, all kinds of things that you and I have no clue about. I was just thinking the other day, what's really helped me over the years is whenever I'm, uh, you know, that thing that rises in you, does anybody want to, uh, that just wants to judge and just, I have to say to myself, I wonder what they've been through. I wonder what they've been through. But the second reason why God says only he has the right to judge, and this is for you and me, only God has the right to judge without him becoming evil himself. Listen, when you hold a grudge, when you refuse to forgive, when you hate and you have resentment, you are standing on the edge of the sharpest knife in the world. Because when you refuse to forgive and you hold a grudge and you stay resentful, the evil that was done to you moves where? Have you ever met people who held on to decades of resentment, anger, and bitterness? They're hardened. They can't love or be loved. They're consumed with self-pity. If you refuse to forgive and you hold on to resentment, anger, and that's the way that you think you're going to repay them, that evil that was unto them could come into you. And God says, don't judge. Let me. Let me. It, 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 before I'm, if, if there's anybody sitting here right now going, you've talked about forgiveness, resentment, bitterness, and there are people in my life, and I, I, I want to implore you this morning, before you just check out after the service and go about your day, sit when the service is over, be a little quiet, and go before God and say, God, what is there in me right now that needs to be dealt with? Who is there in me in my life right now? And there may be an interruption that caused some of this, but who is it? What would you like me to do? How can I yield and submit to your lordship in this area? Verse 20. And Joseph says the, probably the most amazing, again, statement out of, out of all the verses that we've seen about his life. You intended, verse 20 says, to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What is Joseph doing? He's taking God's view. He's taking God's view about the interruptions in his life, even the hard stuff, even the difficult stuff. We began this sermon series by saying this. Our perspective could be life interruption, annoying, irritating, or we can go divine intervention. Could God be at work? 
Is there something God might be doing in the midst of this? And if by the power of the Holy Spirit, I said to you earlier, you can't do this without the Holy Spirit, you can somehow take God's view, what an incredible resource it is. Can you imagine how bold and confident you'll be if you and I actually believe that not everything happens for a reason, but in everything that happens, God is able to glorify himself, make us more like Jesus, and save others? Can you and I imagine how incredibly confident our lives would be? Anybody ever gone hiking? Anybody? I've gone hiking like twice in my life. As you could tell, I'm not the hiking type. Twice in my life I've gone hiking, and both times I've gotten lost. When you get lost hiking, it doesn't help to stay in the valley, because you have no idea where you're going. If you get lost in hiking, the rule of thumb is try and get to the what? The highest point. Because when you get to the highest point, you can go, that's where we're coming from. What the heck? That's where we need to go. Okay? You can't go that way. There's a big ridge over there. That's, we can't go that way because that's just going to be... That's the way... In other words, perspective. 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 From the mountaintop, you can see things and go, ah, but from the valley. What is Joseph doing? He's looking at his life interruptions from the perspective of God's view rather than the valley. Most of us struggle with this because we get our perspective from the valley. Can I tell you what the valley perspective is? The valley perspective can't hold a, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You can't hold those two things together. Impossible. From the valley, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good. You can't hold it. In the valley, it's either, you and I have one or two perspectives this morning. In the valley, it's either life is really good. If you're good to people, people will be good to you. Tragedy, hardships, and suffering, they're anomalies. They're not the except, they're not the norm, they're the exceptions. If you're actually good to God and serve Him, no tragedy, no evil, no suffering will ever touch you. How many of us have that perspective this morning? Good. Because if you have that perspective, you can't read the Bible, can you? Because the Bible is completely opposed to that perspective that says, if you're good to people, people will be good to you. If you're good to God, then God will save your life from hardship, evil, and suffering. Read the book of Job. Read the book of Job sometimes. The book of Job is completely subversive to this idea that if you're good to people, people will be good to you. If you're good to God, then bad things won't happen to you. There are three people in the book of Job who believe that, and they're the fools. They're the idiots. They're the jerks. In the valley, your perspective is this. If, if you're good to people, people are good to you. If you serve God, then no tragedy will ever touch you. Or some of us, it's this. Life is just filled with pain. It doesn't matter if you're good to people because people will just stab you in the back. Your life is going well right now? Well, you just wait. <laughs> Suffering trials and hardships, they're a sign that God is absent. Suffering trials and hardships, they're a sign that God is unloving. Or some of us, suffering trials and hardships means that we're being punished for what we've done. What does Joseph do? 
Joseph is able to hold the two things together that you and I in the valley can't. And what is that perspective? What is he saying when he says, you intended for evil, but God intended for good? This is what he is saying. He is saying, we live in a fallen, broken world where there's going to be evil, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardships. But my God is always good. My God is always loving. And my God is always wise. Hardship and evil is real. Those are inevitable parts of our lives. But my God, who is so sovereign, so wise, and so loving, is able to take those things and in spite of them, despite them, sometimes overruling them, sometimes overwhelming the brokenness and the sin, is always able to bring about good for me, glorify him, and salvation and redemption for the world. The perspective from the top says, church, you intended for evil, but my God intended for good. And if you go, well, how do we know? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. If you ever have doubts, how can something people intend for evil be meant for good? Look at the cross. Is that not the ultimate demonstration of you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the salvation of many lives? If you ever lose hope, because you just can't make sense of it all, look at the cross, the ultimate demonstration. It doesn't matter what you do to me, because God be able to bring redemption out of it. Is this good news, church? Do you know how strong you would be if you believe that? Do you know what that means? That means some of us, even we can't mess up our lives. Even we don't have the power to put ourselves on plan B. Is that good news? God will use even our sin, our detour, our mistakes to bring about good. That is amazing news. Do you know what that means? That means, listen to this next statement, because if you miss it, you missed the whole series. I'm slightly exaggerating. If you, this means that here we are at the end of this sermon series, and we could say, we could say with confidence, that means that everything God allows in our lives is for you. He is intensely and passionately for you. And again, you go, how do I know? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for who? You. Everything. Say everything with me. Everything. Say everything. Everything is for you. Last part, verse 21. So then don't be afraid because I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. What's the last thing he does? He partners with God to be a blessing. He partners with God to be a, to the very same people who betrayed him. Instead of using his power to destroy them, he uses it to bless them. Everybody, will you look up here? Everybody look up here. I've been saying for six weeks, life interruptions isn't just about you. It's for what? 
It's about who? It's for others. Life interruptions. <laughs> we are just bent to be self-absorbed. We are just bent to be self-centered. I know that's how I am. So it's really hard for me whenever life interruptions come and difficulties and hardships and uncomfort. It's constantly just me, 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 me. And so I need to remind myself, Peter, your life interruptions isn't just about you. God has other people in mind. There are kingdom assignments that God wants to do in and through you during this, but it's uncomfortable. Of course it's uncomfortable, but it's painful. Of course it's painful. But God says, I have some things that I want to do through you in the midst of this. Maybe he wants to bring life out of death. He wants to bring growth out of loss. And he wants to bring blessing out of tragedy. Maybe your life interruption, whether it be a week, a month, a year, three years, whatever it is, if you for the first time looked up and said, God, what do you want to do through? Are there some things that you want me to do? Are there people that you want me to bless? Are there people that you want me to comfort? Are there people that you want me to love? Are there people that just need a presence? And I might be the only one to give that presence. God's will is not just about the path we walk, church. It's about how we walk that path. God's will is not just about some isolated event, but it's about how we respond to that event. Do not use Romans 28, for God works for the good of all things, to remain passive and go, well, you'll bring some good out of it. The good that God wants to bring out of that might involve you and me. To respond in a way that brings about good. Amen. Amen. <sighs> he said, I can't do what Joseph did. No, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I'm with you. So in order for you and I to do it, we need to see how he did it. One, you need to realize that what we just talked about, the first two points, the prerequisites for the third. What do I mean? Joseph is able to forgive his brothers to be a blessing because he's that humble. Secondly, he's able to bless the brothers and partner with God because he is so confident that everything is for him. He is humble. He is confident. Where do you and I get the humility and the confidence? Do you know what the essence of the gospel is? Do you realize, I don't know if you guys could see this view. I'll put it this way. Do you realize there's one person on the face of the planet that had the right and the legitimate authority to sit in judgment and judge us? Who was that? One person who had the authority and identity as God. And what does he do? Instead of judging you and I for the sins, not just out there in here, this God, Philippians 2, becomes a servant and becomes obedient. Giving his life on the cross. 
John Stott. Essence of sin is man substituting ourselves for God. Essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We put ourselves where God deserves to be. God puts himself what? Where we deserve to be. How do you get humility? How do you get confidence? How can you look at the one who rightfully belonged here but did that? When we rightfully belonged there but did this. He lives the life we should live and dies the death we should die. And when you and I place our faith in him and his work on the cross, God accepts us and treats us as if we had done everything Jesus had done. And so my acceptance is not based on my performance, but his performance. His love for me is not dependent on my past, but his past. That means I'm secure. That means he has a purpose for me. A purpose that not even I could muck up. I don't know about you, church, but I'm going to end with this. I don't know about you. I don't want to waste my life wondering about why and when. I want my life to radiate what happens when I fully surrender and yield myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and I say, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me? And I want to be obedient to that. Can I get an amen? I want my life to make a difference even in the midst of difficult interruptions because I choose to say, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me to glorify you, to make me more like Jesus? And to bring salvation and redemption to the world. That's what I want my life to be. Andrina, please come on up. First week of the sermon series. This tiny, amazing woman made a beeline for me as I was walking. I said, I got to tell you something. I was like, oh, great. And she started tearing up and she said, I have to tell you what God has been doing through the interruptions in my life. And I just sat there and listened. It wasn't long. And at the end, I said, Andrew, you got to share this with the whole church. So will you give a warm, just a Thank you, not a welcome. Thank you to our sister Andrina as she shares with her. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Don't judge me. There's no other chair. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Okay, anyway. Andrina, literally, I told you when we talked, I said, I'm just going to ask you. How has God been speaking and what has God been doing as you think about life interruptions in your life? And then we're going to close in prayer. Go ahead. Okay. 
the sermon series, as he's been, been ministering it, it was just total, total confirmation of all that has been happening. I mean, for years. Um, God had, God, God had been speaking to me and dealing with me just through not only this sermon series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and just through the preaching of the word as I've, as I've been coming here. And this message was particularly confirmation because I could not make sense of what was going on with me for the last, probably since I've been here, about mm-hmm. six or seven years. And it was hard. Um, my relationship with God has, you know, I've always been able to seem to connect with him, like, uh, you know, in my quiet time or prayer time, you know, a little song in my heart, you know. And, but more and more, there were just times when I could not see him or I could not sense him or feel him anywhere. And that, that scared, that scared me. Do, he, but it got really, really intense the last three years. And for me, he had, you know, he had to deal with me about some things, particularly about some idols in my life. Uh, with uh, my job, I, I, I started working at Northwestern in 2001. And when I got there, I've always felt a little intimidated because it was Northwestern. And I've, I've, I've always felt less than anyway. You know, my self-esteem wasn't all the way intact, you know, and still not. It's just Jesus now, and I'm glad about mm. that, mm. you know. But um, so with with me, you know, working there, I, I did okay. You know, I did my job, and I, I was promoted several times, but I, I never quite felt good enough. Was always uh, kind of like felt, just like I said, less than, you know, the people I work with and all of that. Mm. And, and yet, you know, I was being blessed. And, but then there, there were times, you know, that uh, God would begin to speak to me, and he would say, leave this job, you know, quit this mm. job. And I actually thought, oh, this is the devil. Mm. I would, you know, I would rebuke <laughs> it. And, you know, and I would just, you know, move on with life, you know. And, you know, I would uh, just continue to work. And then years would go by and I would get another promotion and I would be like, see, mm. that wasn't God. Mm. And yet in my heart, mm. God would, he would speak that to me again. Leave this job, and I couldn't figure out why do I want to leave this job? This is a good job. I'm doing okay, mm-hmm. but yet it, it it in fact was God. Now God knew I really wouldn't leave it <laughs> because it, I, my mom would. I could hear my mom. Now she's passed away, but she would always say, "Don't you quit your job? Stay on that job." <laughs> you know, you know, and but and. You know, but I, so I wouldn't leave it. But then there were some certain circumstances that occurred. And I inherited 
a real wackadoo boss. Mm-hmm. And what kind of boss was that again? Wackadoo. A wackadoo boss. Okay. <laughs> I just, I just want to make sure. And you know, for and mm. I came home and I told Andrew, I got to go, Andrew. I gotta go. And he would be like, "Don't leave your job. You can outlast him." Mm. I'm like, "No, I, I have to go." So I quit, and I got another job right away. I went from the NU right to the Rehab Institute of Chicago, mm. but I wasn't happy there. Now you would think I would be happy there. <laughs> Because, oh, the people were wonderful. They appreciated me. I had to take a pay cut, but in, within a year's time, they had boosted me back up to my, to my rightful pay. They let me take three months' leave mm-hmm. and work from another state. Mm-hmm. That's how much favor I had. Mm-hmm. But still in my heart, oh, I was, I was sad. I was getting more and more depressed and more down. And I... I I was looking still at in you and other things that I figured should be in place because I was a certain age. And then I was looking at the fact that I had made certain mistakes and just sad. And I became more and more depressed. Not looking, I was looking at God, but I wasn't looking at God because I wanted what I wanted. I was, I wanted to control even though I knew I didn't have control, I still wanted to try to control. And so in March of 2016, it was, I just, I gave up. I was like, okay, God, I really don't know what's going on here. I realize I can't control anything, but I cannot remain on this job because at that point I couldn't, I couldn't think sometimes. I don't know, uh, in depression, you get so, I, I could not, I, I really, I couldn't, I couldn't do my work. I could do my work, but it wasn't the quality work that I knew I should be doing. So I left uh, RIC in March of 2016, and I just remained, I remained at home. You know, Andrew was, he was very nice to me. <laughs> he, he walked around like, I don't know what's going on, but okay. We, <laughs> I appreciate that. I thank God for him. And mm. I also, you know what? I also really, really thank God for the small groups I was in. Because I, I was in several during these years. Man, you guys are amazing. A lot of times from the pastoral staff and, and just all of you as lay, lay people and just friends. Y'all wouldn't say anything sometimes. Oh, the, just the hugs and the sits and just the words of encouragement. No one knew. You, I know y'all figured something wrong. You know, she, she, I don't know if y'all knew something was wrong with me, but something was wrong. <laughs> But you guys were so great because depression can be hard. And, and for me, you know, at the beginning stages, I could, I could handle it. As long as I can sense God with me, I'm good. I can pretty much, at least I think I can, I can pretty much handle anything as long as I, I sense God. But when God was nowhere around, 
what I could not sense him. And even in my quiet moments, I couldn't. He was just, it just seemed like he wasn't there. I was, I was very, I was afraid. And, I, I, you know, and you, you kind of like, I think when I come to church, you know, I'm, I'm around all these loving people and the worship and the word. It was, it was all good. But yet, I, in, inside, I was still hurting. And sometimes I remember when the Emotional Healthy Spirituality series started, one message pastor ministered about feelings. He said something about feelings, you know, don't be dependent on feelings. And at that point, I was desperate. So it was like, I was mad. I left here mad saying, what do you mean feelings? God deals with me with feelings. (laughs) You know, I didn't say anything. But still, that even was becoming an idol for me Mm. because I wanted so desperately that feeling. Mm. At any rate, as I was home and doing the series, I had to come to say, okay, God, I'm, I, I've quit my job. What is, it, what is it that you need to work in me? Mm. And what he had to show me was that my self-worth, my identity, it was not in my job. Mm. It, was, it, it had to be in him, I had to look to him and see that beauty. And he began to show me mm. how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is and what a good, good father he is. Mm. And also that I was accepted of him and I was his child no matter what. No matter what was going on, that I was his. And through, and through that, he just, let me see if I can, he, all my confidence and all who I am, my marriage, everything, it's all, it's all in him and it's all for his glory. Jesus. There were things that even when I first got saved, uh, I used to, you know, they talk about gifts and talents, you know, in the Bible. And I had asked God at one time, what's my gift and, you know, what's my talent? And he, I just heard one little word, helps. Mm. That was it. That's me, helps. Mm. And there were things in my prayer life that I could, I could, I knew that, you know, I could help, you know, I could sense or, I don't know, imagine or just feel in my spirit that God, you know, could, you know, work through me or wanted to do in me. I could sometimes see pictures in my head. Now, I don't know. I hope it wasn't pride or anything, but I could just see God moving. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. I would feel tormented because on one hand, I could see, you know, I could see, oh, God's hand could be moving and God's hand moving, you know, through me and in me. And on the other hand, I felt so badly about who I was. He had to change all of that image. He had to show me that. He showed me the cross. He showed me, he showed it to me 
in a way that I could understand. He rooted out the lie that, that I wasn't good enough, that it wasn't too late for me, that God, no matter what is going on, that God could, he could work, he works it for his glory, that the time, there's no time that can pass, that it's not too late. He's working it. He's doing, he, his glory is going to be accomplished. I am his child. We are his children. And he's going to do, he's going to work his will in us. Amen. And so that, that is what he showed me. And I'm so glad, so glad. He is a good, good father. I love that song. And I am his child. Amen. Amen. All stand with me. Amen. We all stand together. I want to pray for our sister Andrina as I pray for you and send you out. You are a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. Thank you for the work that you've done in Andrina's life. Times when we are unable to see or sense your presence. By your grace and mercy, you allow us a glimpse, God, to see that you're always at work. Always at work. To glorify you and for our good. And to heal and to save others. Thank you for the work that you have done in and through Andrina. And I pray the same prayer for all of us as we leave this place. Remind us always that we are not gathered here as the end point, but that now we are scattered to the ends and the corners of this city and neighborhood, homes and streets to be a blessing, to partner with you. There are people for us to touch. There are conversations to be had, hugs to give, hands to shake prayers to offer. What is it that you might want to do in and through us, God, this week? May we be postured, be willing, and be ready. In all things, you intended for bad, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. May that truth anchor us this week. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of God's children said, Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, church family.